So I was trained as an economist and uh, became an investment banker. And my training was in high yield and distressed debt, which is automatically geared towards value. I made the shift by becoming an unpaid intern at Christie's. In retrospect, a very foolhardy move, but it worked out. I was going to say, it paid off. And your timing was impeccable, right? I've been very fortunate with my timing. Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. Live arts look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maneker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information, as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. This week's episode is a conversation with Sukanya Rajaratnam. She has been a partner at Mnuchin Gallery since 2013. If you've listened to our previous podcast interview with Robert Mnuchin, you'll know he came to art dealing after a career at Goldman Sachs and as an art collector. Mnuchin himself has a reputation for presenting groundbreaking exhibitions. Rajaratnam, who also has a background in finance prior joining the art world, continues that mission, as you'll hear. This episode was recorded at Mnuchin Gallery on New York's Upper East Side, where ambulance sirens are just the background music of daily life. I hope you'll enjoy it. Sukanya, thank you for taking the time to speak to me. Thank you, Marion. Lovely to have you again. So I wanted to talk a little bit about um, Mnuchin Gallery's program, uh, in part because there's, um, I wouldn't say it's a shift, but a progression in the last couple of years that is seems both a reflection of the market and market interest, but also um, somewhat of a reflection of your background and interests. And uh, I, I wanted to talk, one, hear a little bit more about uh, your view of the program, and then we can talk a little bit more about how that dovetails with the history of the gallery. Absolutely. Mnuchin Gallery has long been known for its place as a platform for blue-chip, post-war, mostly American, but occasionally European artists. And when I came on board back in 2008, that was very much the feeling the program had. I became a partner in 2013, and with it came a greater responsibility to program um, the gallery and what it would look like for the next 10 years. I very much respected what Bob had done, as the whole world did, but I felt that I needed to bring a particular viewpoint that was not only cohesive with my belief, but also a reflection of where the world was going. And so slowly, I started making changes to the program in a way that was not terribly strategic at the time. It looks like it now, but I went very much with my gut. The David Hammond's retrospective exhibition in 2016 was a turning point. The gallery had done two previous shows with David back in 2007 and 2011. I had been very involved in the show in 2011, and I had always felt that a retrospective show 
was warranted, ideally with us. I knew that there would be resistance to this idea, but I wanted to do it anyway. And needless to say, there was a lot of resistance, but it remains, I believe, one of the top three shows the gallery has ever done. In doing that show, I worked with David for a period of two or three weeks in rehanging our original hanging. And of course, David is well known for this, and he did a brilliant job. But in the course of spending that very precious time with David, we started talking about artists who had been overlooked, who were not part of the narrative, and names started coming up. Mainly Ed Clark, who was a friend of David's. David owns the work, you know, a huge believer in the work. And these names were familiar to me. I had heard of them, but I didn't really know the work in that much depth. And I realized in doing some reading, some talking to people, that there was an entire generation of these artists who'd been completely overlooked by the market. And given the success of David's show at the gallery, multiple shows, I thought it was only the right thing to do to use our elevated platform to give these artists their due, for lack of a better way of saying it. I don't want to demean uh, the dealers who, you know, gave these artists shows. I think the question is less on Mm -hmm. the dealers. There are plenty of people who, you know, as you just said, many of these artists were known. But there are lots of artists who are known, and then we see uh, an intense focus on them, sometimes long after they're no longer uh, uh, working and all. And that's, uh, to me, uh, one of the most fascinating things about the art market. Why this artist? Why now? Um, and, And at least we've had, in the last couple of years, these interesting rediscoveries where the artists, at least even if they're nonagenarians, some centenarians, still alive to, to see the appreciation uh, of their work. And I don't think it denigrates a, a other dealers to suggest that you can put on great shows and the, you know, it doesn't, the market doesn't respond or the audience doesn't uh, uh, fully get it. You know, what's interesting about what you just said is, you didn't bring Hammonds to the gallery. There were uh, two previous shows, one slightly before you arrived. Uh, I'm a little curious that there was res- resistance doing a retrospective just because the feeling was it should be focused on, on bodies of work rather than a broader look at him as a... Absolutely. Um, you know, every museum in the world wanted to do a retrospective of uh, David's career, and he'd always resisted the idea. Um, so the resistance came from him. Eventually, he cooperated, and the show turned out to be a greater success than we could ever imagine. More importantly for me, it opened the way I thought, and that is a lasting impact uh, in the way it changed the programming at the gallery. So many of the artists I subsequently showed at the gallery had had platforms, and um, kudos to the people who supported them when support was scarce. But what I realized is we had so much more visibility and this history of showing post-war abstraction and that we could elevate the focus on these artists in a way that nobody had done prior. And so slowly um, I started uh, with Sam Gilliam, Ed Clark, Alma Thomas, Mary Lovelace O'Neill, and it just kept growing and once the momentum started it just took a life of its own most recently with Betty Blayton. And what's been profound for me is that even though it started with a almost social justice mission on, on my part, the market was also simultaneously turning in this direction. And as a former banker, something I do almost unconsciously 
is look for value. It's sort of built into the way I think. And I realized all these artists were so undervalued, still are undervalued relative to their peers, and that we could be a game changer in their markets. And so both things dovetailed in a very serendipitous way, and also dovetailed with the way that the world was changing towards a more equitable place. So all these things came together at the right time. I think that's what's so interesting about this. It's not a, um, a transition or even an abrupt change that, that your interests do coincide with the same audience that Mnuchin Gallery has had as, as your clients in the last few years are also the same collectors who are happy to see Sean Scully side by side with uh, um, Ed Clark. And, and though it's different work, it's also consonant work. And they are beginning to, at least that's the impression, they're beginning to collect across that, not just, you know, these sort of sanctified artists, but looking for artists that they, they think are of a quality that can sit side by side with other, you know, blue chip artists that they've um, uh, already acquired. So one of the things we did well with all these shows is place these works with our client base, our regular client base, again, providing high visibility to these artists where none existed before. We expanded the collector base for these artists, and now you could see an Ed Clark next to an abstract de Kooning, you know, in one of our collector's homes. And that contextualization shifted as well. And I don't want to just focus on African-American artists. You see a Linda Bengler show currently on, and again, as a woman, a woman artist, I feel like her market had been left behind for a long time. And she's an amazing artist. And this show has really shifted the way people look at her work, the way the marketplace responds to her work. The auction record doubled in the course of a month after our show launched. We have a huge place in moving markets. And that is remarkable to me. Well, I noticed at Art Basel in Miami that there were several other galleries with uh, Bengalist pieces, pleated pieces on display. And that didn't strike me as an accident uh, that, you know, the prominence of your gallery being able to uh, set the agenda allowed others to come in and support it. So let's go back uh, for a second because it is interesting to me that you come from a finance background, not just because you come from a finance background, but the founder of the gallery famously had one of the all-time great finance careers before even getting into this uh, uh, industry. And I think in another interview, you mentioned that you know when you first uh, were hired, uh, uh, Bob's attitude was like, well, you don't really know much about uh, art, but I'll give you a try. Uh, and, and so I, I'm curious to hear more of that story and about sort of Again, the sort of transition from looking for value in uh, uh, financial markets to looking for value with art. So I was trained as an economist and I uh, became an investment banker. And my training was in high yield and distressed debt, which is automatically geared towards value. I did that for five years. And uh, I knew at that point that I really wanted to be in the art world. I made the shift by becoming an unpaid intern at Christie's. In retrospect, a very foolhardy move, but it worked out. I was going to say, it paid off. And your timing was impeccable, right? I've been very fortunate with my timing. I started my internship in 2004, just as the post-war market was in its ascent. And 
I worked there for three years. My unpaid internship, thankfully, turned into a paid job at some point. And my training, since I wasn't trained in art history, was to write the evening cell catalog from cover to cover. So that's how I learned about art. After three years, I felt I was ready to make uh, a shift from the back room to the front room, so to speak. And I met Bob, and he famously said at a breakfast meeting to me, you don't know much about art, but I'll take a chance on you. Why don't you show up on Monday? This must have been in the middle of the previous week. So he essentially said, okay, I'll see you tomorrow. And Bob's famous for taking these gut chances. Um, in our case, it's worked out really well. You didn't know nothing about art. Three years of writing evening sale catalogs would build up a pretty good base knowledge of, if, if not art history, at least what sells and what's important in the market, especially in that moment where there was kind of interesting transition go going on. The evening sales were very much about Bob's kind of uh, uh, art and had yet to, to get value in all these other uh, uh, artists uh, so much. So you had some level of, of knowledge, which you didn't have is uh, experience selling. In nowhere in your career, even as a banker, were you actually doing transactions. You were doing analysis, I'm assuming. You Absolutely, were... yes. So that must have been a very big uh, transition. It was a very big transition, and Bob is the ultimate deal maker. So I think that's what he meant when he said, you don't know anything about art. It wasn't about actual knowledge. It was about deal making. I understood where he was coming from. Um, it was a big shift. I have always been um, on the more analytical side, both in my banking days and in my early days in the art world. It suits me. I would never have imagined myself in the past as a salesperson. I'm much more comfortable or I have been much more comfortable letting other people do the deals. But I think I woke up one day, three years into Christie's, and realized that I could do it, and I could do it well, and that if life is about growth, that I would have to push myself. I have a very specific way of selling. I never think of myself as selling. I always think of myself as placing, and placing with the context of value, with the context of art history, with the context of responsibility. Those three things go together for me. And by defining myself that way in the art world, I've developed, I would say, a very loyal base of both collectors and artists. Many people who sell privately or at an auction house have a base uh, either socially or from their educational background of people that they can go to sort of get started. Others, you go to an institution. I mean, I think you know, the banking is, is a, a great example of there are lots of desks full of people selling and everyone sells in their own kind of individual way and has to figure out what works for them. So I'm curious about uh, your experience with it. Did you come in here with a, a sense of you knew a lot of collectors and you could sell to them or, hey, I can do this. I need access to uh, you know a, a Rolodex of people who are willing to buy and then I have to figure out how I'm going to get them to buy what we're selling. Speaking of foolhardy once again, I had no Rolodex when I came in here. I did not know a single collector. I just built it up over time. And, uh, you know, I grew up in Sri Lanka. I don't have much family here. So when I came here, it's not as though I had this huge network. So everything's really happened on its own over time. And I'm as surprised as the next person out there, but <laughs> I'm also very proud of it. 
you ought to be. I mean, uh, again, you're very polite and sort of treating it like, well, I took a chance and it happened, but you took very calculated um, choices in the right places, none of them predetermined. Plenty of people go to Christie's uh, and, and you know learn a bit, but don't necessarily move on to the next job, let alone the one that they think they'd be good at. And you know certainly that plenty of people go from Christie's to uh, you know one dealer or another and uh, either find something else to do or discover that they don't know how to sell and all, let alone also put together the exhibitions. I mean, again, what makes Mnuchin unique is that Bob has done so much of putting those exhibitions to, together. Uh, uh, your near neighbor, Aquavella, is, a, is one of the few other galleries in the position with enough trust among collectors and institutions to be able to pull uh, shows together that most other places wouldn't be able to accomplish. Um, and so you're also doing that as well. Again, it's another sort of leap in uh, the progression. If I'm going to be perfectly honest um, and not shy away from who I am, I would say that I'm very strategic in the way I think and that I don't take actions thoughtlessly. Have I taken risks? Plenty. But it's always with a calculation of the outcome. That's what I've also done in programming. I've taken chances on all of these artists where markets didn't even exist, but with a clear, calculated sense of what the outcome could be. I think that's what my strength is as a dealer. I can see things before other people do, or I need to think about this. <laughs> Essentially, pick things out, you know, before they become popular or baptized by the market. I mean, I think that's the essence of deal making everywhere. It's the essence of arbitrage, going back to, not, not to hang so much on uh, uh, Bob Mnuchin's career as the former head of arbitrage at uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, but it's that sense of, here is something that is undervalued in this place, and if I can move it to this other context, people will see greater value uh, uh, in it. The sense I get from watching it's not something that you is necessarily articulated, it's something that you feel, whether it's in a distressed security, like there's, I know this thing looks terrible, but I think there's something here. Yeah, everyone always asks if there's a science to this. And I was, you know, before I was an economist, I was a math and science person. And I would say that it's so instinctual. I really can't pinpoint what it is, but you're right, it just happens that way. I am not a numbers person, so I can only uh, uh, use a quote to, to describe this, but I've heard it described from people who are deal makers that they often see the, the calculations about the value of a company and, or whatever, not as numbers, but as almost sort of shapes or colors, that, you know, impressions and feelings, not the rational thought we all think that the, the, a numbers person goes through. So when I was younger, I had synesthesia, which is the same thing. I've lost it. Explain what synesthesia is. Um, seeing numbers and alphabets as colors and shapes. I think Kandinsky had it. I had it when I was quite young, and that's how I learned to read and write. I've lost it. But the analogy is appropriate because you just see the unfolding of things in ways that are very unique, and it's served me well in terms of who I choose to show here. Does it also, on the client side, uh, is there that same sort of sense of instinct? 
the person who comes in looking for a de Kooning, but you sell them another work, it requires you having the instinct to know that this is the thing that they might respond to. And of course, if you show them the wrong thing, you're going to lose them as a client, not just because it's the wrong thing, but because there's not going to be a connection uh, between you and, and the client. Do you, is it, does it work the same sort of way that getting a feeling about people? Absolutely. I don't believe in being transactional. I believe in being relationship-driven. So what I do with um, clients, especially new clients, is get to know them, get to know who they are as people, what they would like, and then having that sixth sense of what to show them at the right time. And I've shaped several collections this way, especially with this group of artists, bringing them into the fold of very established post-war collections. Knowing when to do that, how to do that is essential. And that's determined by trust, which in turn is determined by a knowledge of the person. Tell me a little bit more about what new clients are, what's motivating them. They come, you know, traditionally, someone makes a large real estate transaction and decides they need to, you know, uh, decorate their, their new ha house and they start buying. And the old saw is that you become a collector when you run out of wall space, when you're still buying even after you've decorated. But something seems to be happening in the art world in general, and more people are coming into it, I think, these last several years. And you are on the front lines of that, and I was sort of curious to get your impressions of, of what, what sets them on the road to showing up at your door, and how do you work with them at the beginning, and so forth. That old-fashioned idea of collectors who want to live with art still applies, and uh, I spend a great deal of time with collectors like that, you know, thinking about what they would like, need, be happy with. I often work with their architects in terms of building houses around a collection or thinking about what is needed. That goes back to the relationship idea, you know, really understanding what a certain person, um, not only what they want, but they what they could want in 10 years. That's how I think of it. Because oftentimes your taste evolves very quickly and what you like today may not be the thing that stays with you. So I often, in fact, discourage people from making an impulse purchase until I get a better sense of who they are and where they're going. And then I recommend what they might need or want to add to their collection. Then there's a second type of collector that's come into the fold more recently, and that's um, the investment-driven collector. And uh, art has become and has been an asset class for a long time now. It's in many people's portfolios, whether they think of it that way consciously or not. So there's a group of collectors that I've developed who are interested in it for the long-term investment value. Again, I feel like that's one of my strengths. So I'm able to guide people in that direction. Is the, almost the reverse going to happen, that people come to this for the investment and then end up falling in love with the, the, the art? That's the ideal scenario. There are dealers who would say, I'm not dealing with collectors who are interested only in the upside of things. And that becomes tricky when it's primary market, but I'm not dealing in primary market most of the time. So I don't have that conflict. Oftentimes it's secondary work that's been resold. I have no qualms in telling someone, look, I feel like there is considerable upside in this artist. You should buy them now. And this idea that, oh, you're not going to deal with someone because they're only interested in the upside is very limited because whether people admit it or not, most 
people factor that into their purchasing decisions, especially at this level of price point. And I think there's a, a an unrecognized portion of that, which is, yes, the money is important. Money is important to everyone always. But there's also the validation recognition factor. And for better or for worse, for many people, and there was just some of this discussion around the, the Maclow sa sale with, with this, that the validation of people paying more than you paid is part of that overall sense of, you know, I got it right. And it's, it's great to get it right on, on something that may be more obvious, but it's even better on taking a risk, being an early person to buy um, a, an artist either in the primary market or, and this goes back to the um, under-recognized uh, artists, uh, you know, finding artists who have almost been in plain sight but haven't been valued that are going to be valued and that's a, a knowledge of art and having some level of discrimination and another arbitrage in, in all of this and I think that's part of what's exciting about this. If a lot of art collecting is almost a scavenger hunt, learning about the work, locating the work, finding the right opportunity to get the, the work and, and all the value is part of the validation of that, all of that effort. Absolutely, and um, the scavenger hunt is something I love. It goes back to my research days. I've done it a few times, and uh, it's, it's really fun, for lack of a better word. Well, I think that's part of what we see with the, the value is so much of it is about discovery and uh, uh, you know opportunity. Another famous art dealing family used to love to say that you know there were artists that they dealt with often that nobody wanted when it was three hundred thousand dollars, but everyone wanted when it was three million. The art never changed. It's the uh, you know sense of being validated by others and the demand, and it's very hard to take that risk when it's three hundred thousand dollars. It may be more risky when it's three million, but it is perceived as being easier by the, the buyer. Absolutely. Um, I hope Robert doesn't mind my saying this, but uh, one of his favorite quotes, and he says it all the time, is that he didn't like Twombly until he became expensive. <laughs> so it goes back to your point. Um, and that he meant that as a collector, of course, but it's a very true statement. We all have to be educated by other people's interest, right? You know, uh, uh, there are artists, uh, you know, the, this whole thing with Lake Gustin, it, it is the kind of thing that it was a struggle for so long, it's still, you know, uh, happening of the validation of that era uh, of his work. And for a long time, you had to take other people's word for it, for better or worse. Again, the money is just a, 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 an indicator of that. I hate to put you on the spot. What next? What do you see, uh, or what does your gut tell you about things that you're interested in? And and I don't mean to be like you know who are you looking at doing a show with next, but just sort of more broadly, you've had a number of women artists and women of color in the last you know three four shows, and they're of a sort of specific era. And I was just wondering whether there's sort of more of those artists that you're looking at, or artists from different eras. There are artists working today that I'm looking at, and I'm looking to pair them with more historical artists because I think that kind of dialogue is additive in a way that their primary market dealers may not provide. I'm working on a show next year of a living artist, but looking back at an artist from, uh, or pairing him with an artist that goes back to the early 20th century. 
So I like these juxtapositions as well because it opens up the box. Dialogues between artists, maybe sometimes spiritual dialogues between artists, where they seem very unexpected pairings at first. So that's what I'd like to do in the upcoming year. And that's similar to the Rothko Church show that you did um, in the last year. The pandemic has, has made our sense of time somewhat collapse, but, but sort of a similar idea, taking two very different artists and showing them together. It is um, that kind of idea. But with that show, that was all Bob. And uh, I don't want to take credit for that remarkable show, brilliant show. But it is that sort of idea that I'd like to expand on going back in time and forward in time. And I have two very specific uh, shows in mind that hopefully will come to fruition next year. Yeah, I mean, I think you're just saying that Bob, because of his own, you know, uh, ability and confidence, put on a very risky show, Rothko and and Church, and pulled it off uh, magnificently. And that showed you, you could actually do these sort of pairings in a way that would be, I'm assuming, also good for business as well as uh, making a great, you know, show. Absolutely. I mean, I always focus very much on the aesthetics, and uh, I'm a perfectionist when it comes to shows looking good at the gallery. I spend countless hours just making sure, and that's one of the reasons our shows are considered, I think, to be so good, because we are, Bob, Bob and I, are so interested in, in, in the presentation. Having said that, we're a business, and I'm very cognizant of the economics of a show. In doing these pairings, I feel oftentimes both markets, both artists' markets, or if it's three or four artists, they all expand in a very positive way because many times no one's thought about this juxtaposition. And the juxtapositions often lead to their own kind of narratives, again, opening up the dialogue with these artists. You um, somewhat tangentially raised my final question which is when Bob got started in this, he had a similar to his joke about you, he had a similar, yeah, you're a collector, but you know, you don't know anything about uh, art, no one's gonna take you seriously putting on shows. And by owning the shop, it made it possible for him to show that he could put on these kinds of shows and has had a, you know, a, a great run of some extraordinary and impressive shows. And a lot of that based on Bob being a collector which makes me want to sort of turn that around and ask about you. Do you collect? I do. I've uh, collected at least one piece out of every show I've curated at the gallery. Does that inform beyond your you know, position uh, of how you approach either shows or uh, selling? I feel very strongly that you have to uh, stand by what you put on. And if I wasn't buying the artists that I was showing, how could I expect other people to? So I really believe in what I do, first and foremost. I don't do things purely for commercial viability or uh, trendiness or any of that. I think belief is important. People latch onto that, and your belief enables other people to believe and trust. I'm not the, um, how shall I put it, showist person in the art world. I'm relatively quiet and introverted. Where I take a stand, however, people know that I'm serious. And that's who I am as a person. 
and that's who I am as a business person. So you have skin in the game, and but you also uh, acquire beyond your shows, I assume? Oh yes, absolutely. So um, there are a lot of younger artists that I champion and um, own, and they're not a part of the program. Uh, there are a lot of older artists that I own or aspire to own, some of them deceased, um, where I see, you know, I see greatness. How do you make the transition between when you're looking at things to buy for yourself versus looking at things to buy for clients or to show or for the gallery or whatever? I mean, is it circumstance or is there sort of busman's holiday? (laughs) Now I'm doing it on my own time. It's very organic. I don't believe there's, you know, any other way to say it. It usually happens and it's always quite clear and has been for me. Great. I can't thank you enough for taking the time with me. This has been fascinating. Thank you, Marion. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us at the Artelligence Podcast. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io.